Everyone should have the opportunity to serve as pastor of a congregation for a period of time in their life. It would do a lot for them, and I believe a lot for the church. And everybody who doesn't attend a church should serve alongside a pastor for at least 30 days of their life. Why? So they would know more about who we are and what we do. One of the things I discovered as a golfer wandering around different states and places playing golf, a lot of times I'd play golf with someone who was, uh, I did not know. And I never started the round by saying, hello, I'm Doug Miller and I'm the preacher, such and such. I just gave my name. And so we played golf. And as the day went on, when they found out I was a preacher, because sooner or later men are going to get around and ask, well, what do you do? Especially if you're having to wait on the group in front of you. And I get lots of different responses. I remember once I was playing in Kentucky, and I was playing around the golf, and uh, the gentlemen that I were playing with were young, vibrant, energetic, and vocal. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, they had thought that they could talk their golf ball or make their golf ball be so afraid that it would behave in certain ways. And so they spoke often and loudly to their golf balls, and then it happened about the 10th or 11th hole, one of them said, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a seminary student pastoring a church out here in the country. He looked at me. He says, you're what? I said, I'm a pastor. I'm a Methodist pastor. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, you haven't said anything to me to be sorry about. And you might want to apologize to God. You've been talking to him a lot today. But... You know, I'm not for sure the exact language that he understands, so, you know. Uh, oh, red. They have never been so red in their life. Another time I was playing with somebody, and he was a pretty jovial sort, and he asked the same question, too, as we went along, and he almost stopped the golf cart, except I was driving. He looked at me and said, you're what? I'm a preacher. He said, wow, really? I said, yeah. He says, what a job. You work on Sunday mornings, right? <laughs> I said, yep, that's me, Sunday mornings. He said, what else do you do? Do you do anything else? I said, yeah, we do a few other things. Like what? Well, I said, told him one thing we do. And then he, well, what else? And I kept on going and kept on going. And finally, he, he kept on saying, and what else? And I, you talk to people about their marriage problems? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I do that too. He said, wow, what do they say? <laughs> he was so excited. To get to ride with a preacher and find out what a preacher does. Sometimes I've thought in my life that a lot of people, including those inside the church, have those same questions about the church. They wonder, what is the church supposed to do? And when they're visiting, they come in, the first thing they ask is, what is your church doing? Who are you as the church? What kind of people are you? What makes you the church? And a lot of them in today's world are saying we are a large group of suckers who gather regularly to do something that they do not understand. A lot of people in the country do not believe anymore in the institution, and now we've become that, and we're considered an institution, and we are sort of, but in their minds we are an institution. Kind of like Rotary, kind of like the Scouting, kind of like a lot of clubs. And so they don't really understand what we do as a church, but they know that their last remembrance of when they went to church was not a very good experience of what they'd like to do on a regular basis. And so they've never been back again. 
That is the world and the context in which we're doing ministry now. We're much more closer to what the world was like when Jesus was roaming around than we've been in a long time. The presence of real faith in our country and around the world has been diminishing pretty steadily for quite some time. Now, there are places where it's growing and thriving and just going crazy. Places like in Korea, places like in Africa, and many other places that you could name. Because it's relatively new there. But something seems to happen in places where the gospel comes with great power over a long period of time. It seems like, like in Europe, you go over there now, and churches are mostly museums. They're not really thriving places of worship where people gather and their lives are centered around. And you know, some parts of our country are going the same direction as well. And so it behooves the question for people who are still in the church to ask themselves, why is the church not thriving as it used to? Where has the church gone wrong in being the church? Well, when you're a new pastor and you go to the church, you're filled with all kinds of thoughts. Trust me, I've been to several of them. Uh, when you're a pastor going to a new church, you meet all kinds of people. Don't you like having the choir sitting up here now? You, these are some of the kinds of people who go to church. You, you get to eyeball them, they get to eyeball you. And, you know, you can make that contact. The church is made up of young and old and everything in between. But what is it that the church does? If you think the church doesn't do nearly enough, and you think the church does most of what it does poorly, I have a warning for you. I used to think that when I was about 24 or 5, I became convinced of it. I became very critical of the church and what the church was doing. I just thought that most pastors I knew and talked to, and this was confirmed again later on as I got to know many other pastors, didn't really know what they were trying to do. And that was a shock to me. A shock to me. Now I'm sure all those pastors are gone now. The only ones left are those who really do know what they're doing and why they're doing it. But here's what happens is the reason I, I made that statement with a warning. Whenever I was at my strongest vehemence against what the church was doing, I got called to be a pastor. <laughs> See what you can do, big boy? A pretty humbling experience. But some of the things I believed from the pew are still things that I find true and relevant in today's churches. To some degree, you might say, in almost every church. It's something that we will continually fight because we are now an older institution. We are an older reality. And anything as it ages has to struggle to keep the same vitality that it had when it was young. The church has never been something, a, a group of people where you can just pass on what you had to somebody else that they take up exactly what you had. The church is made up of people, and people have to have common experiences that enable people to become who God wants them to be. I can't give it to my grandchildren except slowly, step by step. You just can't do it any other way. And they have to be open to it and receive it along the way. I've got a family member that I've worked on for ages trying to get the boy to pay attention to God, but he's just not interested. And I can't give him interest. I can't make him believe. And I've quit trying, quite frankly. I'm waiting for something to come along. And I, he's had several opportunities, but he still struggles. He believes he's not a spiritual person. 
which is kind of funny because everybody's a spiritual person. You're born that way. You can't get away from it. You may not be a person who recognizes Jesus or God or any other form of religion, but you are inherently spiritual. Everybody is. It's part of our creation, created being. Now, when you become a pastor of a new church, let me tell you what I've been doing for the last 12 months. First of all, I've been, come, I've been getting acquainted with you as individuals and as people of God. I've been getting acquainted with the staff. And now, after these months, I think I'm pretty well acquainted with a small group. We spent so many hours together, we're not going to have to have a staff meeting for another three years. <laughs> they think. I do know them much better. I feel very comfortable with them now, who they are. I think I'm getting to see clearly what their strengths are, even some of where their challenges are. As I've become acquainted with them and the people, I've, I've found a very different kind of congregation as a whole. We have an unusual number of people who are high committed to being discipled by our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a, a large number of people who are very ably carrying on ministry in very important ways, not only here, but around the world. But in this congregation and around the world, we have some outstanding leaders. Now, the second thing you want to do when you come into a new church is you want to be to apply first aid. And whenever I leave, somebody else will have to come in and apply first aid. Because anytime you arrive, there are going to be hurting people at any given time in a congregation. And one of the first things you want to know, want to be able to do is to apply first aid to the hurts of the individual people in the congregation. And also apply first aid occasionally to the order of the church. One of the things as an elder in the United Methodist Church, we are ordained to word, sacrament, and order. Service as well. Order of the church means making sure the church is running as the church is set up to be run in the United Methodist tradition. It means making sure that the different ministries that the church is, is called to do and to be are being performed in the church in a way that it reaches out to people and to individuals. So one of the things you do is you apply immediate first aid. A time or two I needed a tourniquet in the last year to stop the bleeding in a few areas of the church. And I'm still working on getting everything set up in a way that I think allows the order of the church to flow freely through all of the ministries of the church, although I do believe we're making progress. That's not to say everything needed first say there are some incredibly strong ministries going on in this congregation. But the other thing you want to do while you're there is, at least if you're Doug Miller, if you want to study the church and its mission as it exists when you arrive at the church. You want to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it before you start being the all-know-it-all to tell them what they need to do differently or suggesting things that they might could add to or even subtract from the different things the church is doing. And as you study that and learn who they are as a congregation, you begin to love them and love what they're doing. If you're not careful, you'll fall into the trap that I believe many ministers do, and that is simply giving their energies and their time and their efforts to continue what's being done before. It's the same thing that happens in marriages. Sally Miller is so fortunate to be married to Doug Miller. <laughs> For 41 years, 
she hasn't had to worry too much about getting bored because I love change. And, uh, yeah. And that's allowed us to stay married both ways. Change is important to anything that's going to be long-lasting. A gentleman named Jim Pleasure, who's now a retired United Methodist minister, taught me that. Every year his staff evaluated every minister every ministry in the church that he was assigned to, and every year they threw out everything that had become or had begun to die and decided what new to add every year. Every year. That's a task, isn't it? It's a task that many churches haven't done in the last 20 years. Now, once you get to that place, you begin to get more particular. You begin to evaluate who we currently are in relation to what our calling is as a people of God in the current context where God has located us. It, it's one thing to be the church in Salina, Texas. It's another thing to be the church in Paris, Texas. It's something different to be the church in Carrollton, Texas. It's something different to be the church in North Carrollton as opposed to the church in South Car Carrollton, I would say. doesn't mean we have all different shapes. It means the way we apply the same ministries are different because people are different. People have different needs. You have to evaluate your church and what it's doing and the context within which they live. Now, I know we have many people that drive a long way to come here, come here and there's little I can do to help in some of that, granted. Uh, but the heart of the church is here in North Carrollton, Texas. And the last thing the church always wants the pastor to do is to share your vision for the church if they're a forward-looking group, especially if they're into management because it, every nobody knows what a SWOT analysis is, right? So many of our, our people are leaders in the industries, and you have to learn what your strengths and your weaknesses are, where your threats are, what your opportunities are in order to go forward at the planning of the church. Most churches do not do that in an integrated way. So let me tell you first what I'm not going to do. I've been around long enough to know better than to do this. It took me a long time to learn this. That is, the vision of the church must not simply be the pastor's vision. It has to be the vision of the leadership of the church and the people of the church as well. A pastor can lead the congregation to the trough, so to speak, but we cannot make the congregation drink. And if what they're trying to force them to drink is not acceptable to them or not touching stones with their own understanding of the church, then you're going to fail and the church is going to fail. So this morning, I'm beginning part of three sermons. This is the first one of the group. Next week, we're going to do part two. And even though it's a communion Sunday, we're going to have a, a very concentrated and a little different format. Next week, we'll sing and sing and sing. And then we will uh, hear the message. And then we will, we will share in the message, and then we will receive Holy Communion as, a, as an act of God's grace to help us do what we're setting out to do. So I appreciate the fact when I stood up this morning, I had so much time. Some of you might not appreciate that as much as I do. I understand that. But that's all right. You know, you can still be a pastor for a week, and then you get the pulpit. No, maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, so today as we get ready to start here, where do we want to start this? I want to start by reminding you of who the church is called to be. That's why we read Matthew 10, 1 through 8. 
When Jesus came to start the church, and don't be misunderstood, he did come to start the church, the community of the faithful, the followers of the way of Jesus. He came to do that. He started out in a very, uh, with a very bad plan, I think. Uh, I thought so often. And the reason I think it was a bad plan is he went about picking 12 people, 12, not 24, 12. And these weren't the brightest tools in the shed. He picked 12 people to follow him and to form the nucleus of his church. And not only that, after three and a half years, he was willing to die and leave the whole mess in the hands of 11. Because he knew one was about to depart. A bad idea, Jesus. I've pastored congregations of 11. They are not very strong. They are not. But that's what he did. And then amazingly... We see that that group of people that he gathered together, slept with, taught, ate with, gave practical lessons in how to be children of God, what the kingdom of God was about, gave practical lesson after practical lesson after practical lesson on how to apply it. Then he left and left them in charge, and he sent them a power source in order to help them remember the content they had learned and the way it had been applied to people's lives. And once they got filled with the Holy Spirit, those 11 ordinary persons became a force. And then on Pentecost, where they were gathered together again by Jesus, he told them to wait for him in Galilee. He went there and he gave them the great uh, commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You know, go and baptize everybody all around the world. In the first part of Acts, when he said again, and while they were waiting, he came to them again. Right where he told them to be, and he said, going to Jerusalem, Judea. And Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. You see what the church's mission is beginning to look like? When he came first, when he pulled them all together, and he, before he sent them out on their first missionary journey, he sent them out saying, Go out there. And what did it say in Matthew? It said, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. That's the ministry of the church. And then he said, Freely you've received, now freely give. It's a great song in the United Methodist hymnal, a fairly new song in the church. And then at the end of Matthew, what did he say? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe my commandments. And then what did he say in Acts? Acts 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. It looks like concentric circles when you look at that on a map. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. That's the church's task. Pretty big task. We've been working on it a long time. And then after Jesus had left and the Holy Spirit had come, Peter preached his first sermon. That was worth listening to, at least. And then what happened? 3,000 people responded. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were sharing all things in common. They were selling their property. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, united together, taking meals together, with gladness and sincerity of heart. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It's a big task to be the church. It's one God gave to a small group. And in recent years, the church has once again begun to practice and to learn that the small group method, which I thought was a bad idea, is the way it works. Small group ministry is the way that large group ministry becomes effective. Small group ministry makes disciples out of Christians. Now, making a Christian is a difficult process. And churches have different ways of doing it. United Methodists love Sunday school classes. So do I. First of all, if there's already Sunday school classes in place, I don't have to do anything but come in as pastor and say, Sunday school is great you ought to go. If you're not going, join up one. And, you know, that's what people ought to do. And occasionally, you know, you start a new one. For when there's enough new people in, they want to start another class. Or for a different purpose, you start another class. Simple. What preacher doesn't want, want that job, right? We can do that. We fell asleep in seminary learning how to do that. That's the way it worked. But today's church, today's thriving churches, most of them are in some way incorporating small group ministry throughout their church. Small groups of people meeting for specific purposes that is their agenda opened up to the will of the people so that they might move and function in ways that accomplish the mission of the church. They don't need a pastor to do it. They pray for each other. They listen to each other. They teach one another. They talk about how their lives and what they're studying makes a difference and how it works. And it changes them. It changed me. It made a difference in my life when I got more involved than just Sunday school. When I went to a small group that was being led by other people where we received content and where the group was small enough we could actually talk about the content, content and ask questions. Probably many times you've heard a sermon and when you got up and got left to leave, you thought, man, I'd like to ask him what he meant by that. Something the preacher said. You can't do that very well, can you, with this size group? You quite frankly can't do it very well with 50. I've tried it and have done it with 50, groups of 50, but it's only partially successful. First of all, if you get 50... You'll have uh, two or three that are in the wrong group. And they make my life miserable. And they make everybody else miserable. And if you have 30, it's better than 50. But it's still too many. We don't have that many hours in the day. Everybody doesn't get to ask their questions. And besides that, if you think in a group of 30 that many people are going to really tell you what's bothering their heart... It's it going to happen. And if they do, something's wrong with them. <laughs> Don't tell 30 people what's really on your heart if it's something serious. Unless it's very general. Don't tempt them. Because if you tempt them with too much information, the rest of us might have to hear it. And you say, with 30? You mean my Sunday school class? Could I tell you stories? <coughs> and yet we still have that need. In a book written some time ago, it was written out of research that was done by Mr. Gallup. You know, he loves to do research. He's made a nice career for himself. And he took a um, poll of 
And he came out with this idea that 70% of Americans say the church is not meeting their needs. It seemed like six topics were mentioned over and over again in different ways. Number one, what they were looking for and weren't getting met, they, they need to believe that life is meaningful and has purpose. They need to have a sense of community and deeper relationships. They need to be appreciated and respected. They need to be listened to and heard. They need to grow in their faith. They need to receive practical help in developing a mature faith. And 70% of the people don't believe that you get that in normal church settings. The church cannot ignore stories like that. It's kind of like when you're raising your children. Usually with the first child, certainly by the second, you learn an amazing thing. It's usually when they turn about four and they're really getting vocal. And all of a sudden, all the cute stuff that you laughed at that we were doing when they were two and three is not so cute anymore. <laughs> you realize it's time to sit down and teach the four-year-old how to act like a four-year-old, not the two-year-old. You know, it's one thing to take a baby, as I took Micah the other night. She was screaming her head off. She woke up from her nights. She'd been put down for the night, and she woke up, and she set the house on fire. We're trying to get her to sleep through the night now. It's pretty much working, pretty much working. She is still eight months. Well, that day, Papa was there, and Sally can tell you, I don't do well with crying children in the house. So, as she kept on screaming, I, Sally, Sarah, and I got up at the same time, and I said, let me do it, let me do it. Okay, you go try. So I went back there. Man, was she mad. Ooh, I picked her up out of that bed, and I thought, well, she'll be happy now. Not so much. <laughs> I rocked her. She'll get tired in a minute. Not so much. I put her down on the floor and let her walk around. She kept trying to walk toward the door of where she knew her mother was outside that door. She just wasn't going to quit, so I just let her cry. Kept talking to her, kept talking to her, kept talking to her. Finally, I got to the point where I'm thinking, you know, you might need a different kind of lesson. <laughs> then I remembered this was not Miller, who's four. This was Micah, who was eight months. So I went back to the rocking chair again, and I just kept talking to her and singing to her. And that'll put anybody to sleep if I'm singing to them. <laughs> and finally, she got a little... <sighs> no more screaming. Just... And finally, she laid down and... The deep breathing and the sniffling became more irregular, and then her little body relaxed, and pretty soon she was a wet, little sleeping baby. And I laid her down again and walked out of the room. I guess she peeped again for the rest of the night. I don't know. That's okay when they're eight months old. It's not okay when they're six, and you tell them to go to bed, and they say, no, I don't want to. <laughs> you got to make a change, right? So I am here today to share with you, if we're going to be the church, we have to evaluate who we are right now, and then we have to figure out if we are fulfilling the call to the church to be the church in our place or not. I'm going to bring that information to you, my evaluation, next week. But I'm going to do something more than that. I'm going to begin working on a list of 40 people. 40 people. I think I need 40 people who will commit to meeting with me and that group of 40 people for probably about a day and a half, maybe a day. 
I want to meet with 40 people because I want to test out with you and study with you what is the context that we're called to do ministry. And I want to do that because this is one thing I've learned already. Despite you have excellent worship, despite you have amazing attendance in Sunday school, despite the fact that you do more foreign missions for a congregation your size than anybody I know, despite all of that, we still are basically the same size or a little smaller than we were 10 years ago when we moved out to this site. The Church of Jesus Christ is not about numbers, but the Church of Jesus Christ has always been about reaching other people. Always. Jesus was not stagnant. He called his disciples and he sent them out. He himself wandered around doing itinerant ministry the whole time after his call to ministry was put into action. We must do the same thing. We must be a church that learns how we can reach out in an appropriate way in 2014. We can't do it like Jesus did it. We can't do that. But we can do the same types of things, just not in the same ways. The ministry and the purpose is still the same. But how you do it has to be adjusted to the culture in which you're involved in. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm set and ready to do one thing that goes along right with that idea of picking 40. Regrouping. We have to regroup as a congregation. This could be the beginning of my end, in case you didn't know that. Because uh, I realize that churches have a certain amount of inertia going and they don't like to change them very often. But if we don't change something what, from what we've been doing, we're going to keep getting what we've got for the last 10 years. I'm sure of that. It doesn't mean you're willing to change. I, I get that. But it does need, mean that you need to change if you're going to be the complete church that God has called you to be. Now, any church that got a close examination will find areas in their ministry that are stronger than others, areas in their ministry that are weaker than others. But I've never seen a congregation that has as much good as you have in my 35 years that it's not growing. Trust me, I have worried about that. I've brought it up to numbers of colleagues. I've looked and I've looked and I've prayed and I've read and I've read. And one thing I'm sure about, we must regroup. We must reformulate our strategy for being in mission. Does that mean we'll throw away everything? Of course not. Don't run out and start telling people, preacher's going to change the whole church. If you do, I'm going to have to answer 30 phone calls, and I'm really going to be upset with you. And here's something you need to know. When I get upset with you because you're causing me that kind of extra work, I will know your name before it's all over. <laughs> and I don't believe in getting really mad with you, just getting even. You know, I'll figure out how to get you a, a, a lot of phone calls if that's, if that's helpful to you. So... Uh, trust me, we're not going to quit doing foreign missions. Trust me, we're not going to tear down our Sunday schools. Trust me, we're not going to quit coming to worship and asking God to open up the heavens. We're not going to do that. But we have to be more intentional in examining ourselves and our context to see what we must do to hit the nerve of the people in Carrollton, Texas who are not in church. And their name is Legion. That's what our call is. That's what we must do. Because freely we have received and freely we must give. Small groups are key to that. You have a survey inside your bulletin today. 
I know what happens to surveys, and you do too. Let's start with number one. There's a box out in the information center, and it's been moved now, and we still were able to have church with it not there in the center. <laughs> we moved it down the corner and opened up the area for us to mingle more and enjoy one another more. And on that center, there's a big, visible box that will hold your survey if you want to just stay and do it today. If you're one of those people who will take it home and not send it back, then I suggest you do it today. I su suggest you just simply be honest and answer the survey. And you may be saying, but I don't want to be a small group. Yeah, but remember those phone calls? Small groups have huge impact when a large majority of the congregation participate in them. Small groups that can meet anytime, anywhere, around any kind of agenda that the small group chooses. They won't all look the same. They won't all be the same. They can be informed by things the congregation is studying, or they can be totally what a group needs. They can be mostly to share. They can be mostly to pray. They can be mostly to study. But they are meant to be practical in the nature of whatever you're doing, that the people in that small group, anywhere from a triad of three to up to as much as 10 or 12, and if you want to go more than that with couples, be my guest. But if you get more than 12 to 15, then you're going to have some, a group that can't really accomplish what only a small group can do. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but I don't know people to form a small group with. We will help you if you need help. But we're not going to try and put you in the groups in the beginning. We're going to let you pick your own. Some of you are already in small groups. Maybe you need to regroup. I don't know if you do or not. You're the only one that knows that. Perhaps your group has gotten a little stale. Perhaps you know each other so well now that it's more of a friendship club than anything else. And maybe right now you need to be spurred on to do something different. You need a different challenge. Regroup just means that. If you're in a group now, your group is going to be officially over September the 21st by divine decree of Cindy Johnston. She did it. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> but remember, you can have any group you want. If you want to reconstitute your group with the same people, you're welcome to do that. Some of you may have decided that those you have not been the leader in your group, you're ready to lead now. We need you. Some of you tried to get in a small group last time and you never found the right group. And I'll tell you a secret. It wasn't always followed up the way it's going to be followed up here. If you want in a group, unless you're are so weird, <laughs> are so hard-headed that I can't find four or five other people who want to meet with you that I will sign you to a staff group. <laughs> staff is shrinking. I can see resignations on my desk right now. I just believe there's a group for everybody. And I know some of you say, well, I don't say I have time. The other thing we're adopting right now is we're getting to work on a phrase that we want to become true. Worship plus two. We believe everybody needs to come to worship regularly and they need to be involved in two other things. One a serving group and one a learning group or sharing group or whatever kind of group it is. We are called to be servants. If, you, if you're just learning and never serving, it's not getting the job done. If you're going to Sunday school and learning, then going to a small group and learning, but you're never applying it to the real life, you need a small group. Some of you are going to need more than two groups. Some of you are already involved in three or four. I know you're serving in the church. I want you to think primarily if you're serving being outside the church. 
I know you're serving inside of the church and you get credit for that in heaven. But if you're serving outside the church, you might be meeting more of God's purposes right now in this context at this time than serving here. And I want you all to quit teaching Sunday school. Still got to have Sunday school teachers. But I want you to entertain the idea of adopting the phrase worship plus two. Sunday school is kind of part of morning worship for many of us. Last week we had 83% of our people that were in Sunday school were in worship, numbers-wise. That's an incredible number. I don't want that to change. But before I get through preaching through in the end of August, you're going to know how these things play out as we get forward to another series that I'm going to start right after this series that's going to be entitled, Why Not This Year? And I'm going to lay out a lot of details beginning in those, those, those sermons at that time. Why, is, why am I going to push you so hard to be in a small group? Because of another study done by, at this time, Carl George, called George in a book called Prepare Your Church for the Future. It's been around a long time. But he noticed that there are so many phrases in the New Testament that are all about, all about the same thing and can be fixed in one way. Be at peace with each other, Mark 9, 50. Wash one another's feet, John 13, 14. Be voted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12, 10. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12, 10. Instruct one another, Romans 15 and 14. Have equal concern for each other, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4 and 32. Forgiving each other, just as Christ... In Christ, God forgave you. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. These are called the one another phrases. There's not another way in the church, not another tool that we have that can accomplish all those one another's nearly so well as a small group can. Some of the things you just can't accomplish in a Sunday school, you really can't. And you shouldn't. They're not designed for that. They're designed for a teacher to teach you and for you to learn content. They're designed for fellowship and support at a, at a larger level. But the very private support that every one of us needs is designed to be done in a small group. The very practicality of leaving out the gospel, making the content be applicable to what we do in our regular lives can only be done in a small group. You don't have enough discussion time with 25 or 40 of you. You can do that in six or eight. I know some of you are already turning me off. I get that. God will forgive you. I'll get around to it eventually. You just don't want to do a small group. You don't want to really share what you think. You don't, you don't really want to be vulnerable. All I'm saying is the scriptures tell you to be. And I'm just asking you to pray about it. I'm asking you to trust us that we can find you a small group if you can't find your own. And we're going to meet together September the 21st, is that right? And Cindy will be putting groups together at that time. No, not really. You're going to be putting your own groups together that time as we mill around together and enjoy an evening. And those of you who need help finding a group, if you're that new, we would love to help you. And we will follow through until it gets done. So... I realize I've just given Cindy a big challenge, but don't worry. She'll share the challenge with Cindy S. And then if they can't get it done, they'll get it done with Chiv. 
And if they can't get it done, they'll bring David in on it and Lauren. And if they can't get it done, they'll call the district superintendent. <laughs> oh yeah, I might help somewhere along that way. This is just the beginning. I don't believe you feel called to be only what you are now. I don't believe it. I don't believe God put you all together in this place for just what you are now. Although you're something special in many ways. But I believe we're not finished. I believe we've not been all that God has called us to be. I believe the church is yet waiting to emerge more fully in this place. I believe that's why I'm here. I believe that's why you're here, if you're here today. And I'm hoping that you will choose to get outside your comfort zone and to sign that little thing and turn it in about small groups. You don't have to. I'm asking you to. You don't have to do what the pastor says. I know. I, I spent a lot of my life not doing what the pastor says. But what if God, what if God designed small groups for every one of us? What if that really was the answer? It is, after all, the way Jesus started. Might not be a bad way to start for you either. It takes a little risk. We're going to stand and sing. If you're here today and you need to make a decision for Christ, we would love to meet you. If you're looking for a church home and you're looking for a small group, or even if you're not, I'd love to meet you. If you're looking for a church home, we're one big happy family here most days. And we love being the church. We love to have you be a part of us. Stand as we sing together. Let's close this time.